You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 114. Today we're asking the question, how do we manage safety for work from home workers? Let's get started. Hey everybody. My name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So today we have a paper that is mainly about the work of safety in a particular domain, which is trying to manage the safety of workers who are at home. Uh, David, do you want to give us a little bit of background around this topic? Yeah, we saw a few papers, Drew, online about work from home arrangements. And I guess we haven't we haven't talked about it on the podcast. It's been very topical, obviously, since uh, the start of COVID. But but before then, you know, the organizations were were working through flexible arrangements for much of the last the last decade. Even to, in today's global financial press, you know, the CEOs of Amazon and Microsoft and others are coming out and talking about their feelings about work from homes arrangements. Uh, who are the winners? Who are the losers? And but at the end of the day, I think, Drew, that, you know, into the future, organizations are going to have these working at home, hybrid working type arrangements. So I think this is an important question, you know, for us to consider on the podcast. So, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, this is something we've been looking at for a while. During COVID, there were lots of papers that were rushed out as people tried to be really topical and provide useful advice really quickly. But the sort of longevity of the research and the strength of the research particularly for such an important topic that is going to hang around. The papers just sort of didn't do it justice. And so this is one of the first papers that I think takes a really sort of solid scientific look as part of a decent project into safety of working at home. So Drew, would you like to, would you like to introduce the paper and then we can get straight into it? Yep. So this is a multi-university collaboration funded by the Centre of Work, Health and Safety in New South Wales. Uh, there are eight authors. I won't list all eight of them. Um, But the lead author is Tim Bentley of Edith Cowan University. Uh, Professor Bentley's a mid-career researcher. He's got pretty broad interests in work health and safety, stretching across uh, well-being, mental health, older workers, remote workers, psychosocial safety. So hopefully that paints a bit of a picture and gives you some understanding of why he's leading this work into work from home. Uh, The paper is called A Systems Model for the Design of Occupational Health and Safety Management Systems, Inclusive of Work from Home Arrangements, Uh, which is a little bit of a mouthful, but yeah, just generally accept that as we're designing something for health and safety for work from home, Uh, published in the journal Applied Ergonomics. Uh, The research method they've called co-design, which David, I don't think is something that we've covered on the podcast before. I don't think we have, Drew. No. I'll I'll sort of go through the method from sort of start to end so you get some sense for how it works. So prior to this particular paper, they've already done a number of steps. They've done a literature review of work from home, work during COVID, psychosocial safety, that sort of thing. They've done a quantitative survey that went out to a large number of flexible workers. And they've done an interview study of flexible workers and their managers. So a lot of set up background, understanding the problem space. For this particular study, they had five focus groups with a total of 23 participants. Uh, Four OHS staff, 
two HR managers, three work from home workers, three line managers, three senior managers, and eight regulators. Uh, that may sound like a little bit of an odd mix, and we'll get into that balance and how it's affected the research a bit later on. But the overall idea of co-design is that you're going through a number of cycles where the researchers and the participants are looking at and commenting on and improving the same work product. So in this case, the work product is a framework for managing the safety of workers from home. So they go into the first focus group with lots of data that's already been analyzed. Then that focus group reviews and revises the framework, pointing out problems, pointing out issues, making you know, insights. The researchers revise the model, present it to the next focus group, to the next focus group, to the next focus group, uh, improving it each time. And then eventually they have a final framework which they send back to everyone so that people who are in the first couple of focus groups get to see what it finally looked like and make further comments. D David, what do you think about the sort of choice of participants? We're doing safety of work from home and we've only got three people who work from home, but eight regulators in the focus groups. That obviously stuck out through, you know, three line managers, three senior managers, three OHS people. So you've already got nine people who represent management's interests in organisations. And then you've got regulators who represent, you know, government, government and community interests. And then out of all of those 23, you've got three people with who are actually, you know, considered work from home, well, who are work from home workers, which is the group that we're trying to understand. So I would have liked to have seen that far more balanced, Drew. I, I mean, I don't know the right number, but I'm thinking 50% work from home workers and 50% other people, uh, because I'd I'd be worried that you know that like you said at the start, safety of work versus work of safety. I'd be worried that these different groups have you know slightly different views over what safety management is. Yes, I, I would have liked to see more balance myself, and I would have liked to see which group participants came from reported in the findings, so that we had some idea about which were the needs of regulators being met by this, which were the needs of management being met by this, which were the needs of workers. Um, but I will say in justice to the researchers that at this point of the project, they've already done two big studies focusing on the workers themselves. So it's not that the researchers were ignoring those workers. Um, it's just that in this particular piece of research, that's not what they were doing. And they do in their discussion point out the big risk of leaving workers out at this stage which is that we don't capture any diversity. So there's a risk that you know, we're missing important contributions from workers with different needs, neurodiverse workers, workers with mental health issues, workers with particular reasons for working at home, and not gonna be able to comment on the framework and how it might affect them. So that, that is a limitation that they acknowledge, but it is still a big limitation of the work. And I think it comes from the way the Center for Workplace and Health and Safety sends to set up grants where they want researchers to promise a toolkit at the end of every project. And the more work you put into the early stages, then the smaller and fewer participants you've got in that toolkit phase. And that's what's happened here is they've done the early stages really well, and they've done this last stage with the resources and the people that they had to get the toolkit produced. So Drew, there's some background in the paper from, you mentioned these, these other previous studies and, and the literature review that have been done in, in building up to, to this study. Should we talk through sort of some of the I guess, themes and issues that had been surfaced in the, in the previous work? Sure. So th this is just like a collation literature review. So the researchers aren't necessarily specifically endorsing any of these ideas. They're just what comes up in the literature. The first one they point out is the problems with participation and representation of workers when they're working from home. Uh, so 
you know, it's important for health and safety that worker views are considered in how we manage safety. And at least in Australia and the UK, it's actually a legal requirement that we include that worker voice. But it's kind of hard to get a worker voice when the workers are not physically there. Even if you get one or two workers, how do you know that they're representing the other workers? Because they're not all in the same workplace, they may all have their own individualised concerns. Uh, so, you know, a, a, a health and safety rep isn't really repping when they're just working by themselves. Yeah, it's a great point, Drew. And, and, and that sort of leads on to hazard identification. So the, the central part of our safety management arrangements, which is the identification, understanding, control of hazards. And, you know, the, the conclusion is that many of these approaches in organisations are designed around traditional working arrangements. You know, the mechanisms by which people report and the way that the communication and, and resolution can happen um, is, is very much assuming a, a more traditional work arrangement. And, and that goes not just for the hazards themselves, but also for checking that the whole system of hazard identification and risk management is working. You know, we, we rely a lot on supervisors seeing what's actually going on and knowing whether their attempts to manage hazards are working. And we just lose that visibility and then so we're reliant on the reporting system rather than the reporting system being a reflection of lots of day-to-day -day monitoring activity. Yeah, I think, Drew, you know, that's a really good point. You know, leadership inspections and, and walkthroughs and senior leadership visits and just the presence of, of the people and even, you know, health and safety personnel, you know, their, their, their time in the field or time at the workplace, so to speak, all of that doesn't happen or, or doesn't happen in the traditional way with working from home arrangements. The next big factor is what the actual hazards are. So, you know, there's a whole range of things that we want risk and hazard assessment to cover, but what's going to be important depends on what the environment is. And there's a lot of research now, and COVID has sped up the size and quality of this research, which says that working from home increases exposure to some very specific hazards. Um, and a lot of those are psychosocial. Uh, so social, social isolation, workload, and the just number of different demands that people need to deal with, work and family conflict, and bullying and harassment are all, you know, it's not that that's gonna automatically happen when you work from home, but the rate of those things goes up significantly and the severity of those things goes up for work from home workers. Which is interesting, Drew, if I think about risk perception, and this is where a study involving a more balanced group of people, maybe not at this point in the study but uh, or, or another study, because I think many work-from-home workers claim that uh, the working-from-home flexible hybrid arrangements actually assist them to, to lower their overall risk and hazards associated with psychosocial risks. So it's really interesting that, that research is kind of suggesting that, you know, a, a different view. Yeah, and, and you're right, David, that this is obviously going to depend on the individual and their family circumstances and what things are like at work. You know, for someone like myself, for whom, like, hell is other people, working from home takes away a huge amount of stress and potential for interpersonal things to go wrong. But for someone who gets their, like, value and productivity out of conversations in the corridors, and that's what keeps them, like, going and thriving and feeling you know, important and valued and doing good work, then working from home is going to take away a lot of that positive feedback that helps them engage. Yeah, and Drew, and it's not just the researchers point out, it's not just, uh, I guess, maybe traditional systems not not being inclusive of these types of risks and, and how to manage them, but also that these, these risks might actually be sort of more poorly understood by workers or their management. So it's sort of missing from the system, but it's also missing from sort of the knowledge and the, the capability of, you know, workforce and management as well. 
Yeah, we'll get onto this a bit later, but um, a lot of OHS practitioners lack both sort of training and confidence in dealing with psychosocial issues. It's a fairly new thing to sort of expand the bounds of responsibility to include those hazards as part of safety. And it's something where even as researchers, we have big gaps. Uh, So for example, one of the things that they point out in this paper is no one really knows why bullying and harassment is associated with work from home. There's no like, like isolation, there's an obvious mechanism, but why is bullying worse? Um, We don't really know and it hasn't been thoroughly studied. So that's gonna make it hard to put in place good preventative strategies when you know that it's something that you have to work with, but you don't know. How, how, why it's occurring, and so we don't have great solutions. But you with that? I, I guess the last piece, just to point out, is also the access to information. So you know, we know companies obviously have have, I guess, a ranging quality of online tools and systems to find information. And the very fact that people are working at home means that the the IT arrangements need to be, I guess, at least at a minimum acceptable level. That being said, though, the the research still seems to point out that it can be harder to to access and find information being outside of the workplace. Yeah, David, I have to admit I'm surprised that that one came up because it implies that workers are actually looking up health and safety policies on their company's intranet and there's someone actually trying to do it from home and finding it out that they can't. So, uh, yeah, win for the companies and the people are actually looking for the information online. Not a win that when they're working from home, it's harder to get that information and you need a VPN to make it work and it just gets all more complicated. Yeah. And Drew, so this this framework, and we'll talk about the framework and the I guess the suggestion for a toolkit coming at the end of this study, but there's sort of there seems to be six main themes that have that have come through in this research. Should we should we talk to those? Yeah. So so we I think we can go through these fairly quickly, because the value I think is in what they finally came up with. The the first theme is to do with the regulatory environment. Um, no surprise when you talk to a bunch of regulators, they tell you that work practices during COVID were evolving faster than regulations could keep up. So you've got this widespread adoption of work from home arrangements and you've got regulation that assumes that work is happening quite differently. What I think is really interesting, though, is what that reveals about how we think about regulators, because we're supposedly under a goal based regime where the regulator doesn't sort of patronize companies and tell them what to do. They're supposed to be setting high level standards that should be irrelevant to the particular type of work practice. But we're clearly still in a state where at least some of the regulators and at least some businesses are expecting the regulator to be very hands-on in telling workplaces how they should handle particular types of work. You know, the, the Robins report was all about stripping back detailed requirements so companies would think for themselves and be constantly aware of safety. But you know, it seems at least in Australia at the moment, companies need a detailed code of practice telling them how to think for themselves. And the regulator is quite happy to do that and thinks that it's part of their job. I don't think that's necessarily good or bad. It's just an interesting sort of mismatch between philosophy and how regulation actually works in practice. Yeah, and I think, Drew, for those listeners outside of Australia, this research uh, was conducted exclusively inside Australia. So, so Drew's references there to goal-based regimes and, and Robin's report is very much the model of regulation in, in this country and, and other Commonwealth countries and, and, and other countries around the world. Um, there are, however, rule-based regimes, and it would be inter- interesting, Drew, to um, extend some of this research or, or studies into, you know, if this is a topic of interest about, you know, the relationship between regulators and, and organisations and what specifically organisations are looking for in respect of regulation, 
then I think that would um, be best done, you know, as an international research project. Yeah, I'd be very interested to see now that we've sort of had multiple countries doing post-COVID studies, whether we now start to have comparisons of those studies um, and see how different countries coped with workplace health and safety during COVID and during the general shift to more flexible work arrangements and work from home. So the second theme they've labelled as leadership, but it's quite an interesting take on leadership. It's about how willing organisations were when they start having all of these psychosocial hazards being reported up through their reporting systems, how willing they are to treat that as safety and as something that management needs to seriously respond to versus how much it's just sort of treated as out of scope or irrelevant for safety. So it really sort of shows that you know, leadership isn't just telling people safety is important. It sort of sets the tone on what counts of safety, what support we as an organisation think is our responsibility and what we're willing to offer to our employees. And Drew, it's interesting, I think, just in, in this finding in that we've been talking for more than two decades since we've been working hard on more open reporting cultures in organisations when organisations number of incident reports go up and up and up and we struggle to understand is that a sign of worsening safety or is that a sign of better reporting and you know we, that that debate's been around for a very long time and i think what we're seeing here is a similar debate when companies create these psychosocial hazard reporting systems and start to talk more openly about it then it may be inevitable that, that there's a much larger volume of of these issues being surfaced in the organization and i think that sometimes creates the same protective response from managers not really wanting to speak meaningfully about this, maybe not really wanting to deal with systemic issues, being worried that you know all these issues are a reflection on their leadership. So it's interesting to, it, it will be interesting to see how this plays out because I can see a lot of parallels to what we've done in safety starting more than 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and I think there's a couple of very legitimate things that management are concerned about. Um, Psychosocial hazards tend to look a lot more like direct criticism of management because they're often about relationships between workers and their managers. So it it does sort of come across as much more direct criticism, which is much harder to receive. Um, But there's also a sort of legitimate concern that, hey, we're not psychologists. We could do as much harm or as good if we try to like handle this stuff that we are clearly not equipped to deal with. So it can be some quite legitimate sort of trying to draw the lines about what a company can and can or should or shouldn't take responsibility for. Yeah, Drew, and I think leaders aren't engineers necessarily or hygienists or ergonomists. So it's just another another specialist skill that leaders need to be able to to draw on. So yeah, I see that as definitely definitely part of the discussion and and but I also think that I still don't know if that's any different to any other technical health and safety risk issue in the in the organization. Uh, yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with you there. And, and I do think that's interesting that, you know, safety people will quite happily step into a physical issue that they don't have a lot of expertise about, but because it's like physical and visible, they think they've got enough expertise to deal with it. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't even say safety people, managers as well are often in that same case. Uh, but you put an issue inside someone's heads, it's much more obvious to them that they might lack the expertise to speak credibly about it. And so that you know, it's not a new problem that how do I manage something that I'm not an expert in myself, but people are quicker to realise when it comes to psychology that maybe they're not experts than they are when it comes to design of staircases or design of risk assessment systems. 
Yeah, so so Drew, that was that was I guess that broad leadership category, and then they talk specifically about line management, and you talk then about psychosocial hazards and risk being being, or I don't know if it's sometimes or or often about the relationship between people and their manager or people in their work or people in their co-workers. What do they have to say about line management? So, so this is where I personally think it starts to get interesting and where later on they're going to make a really useful contribution because line managers are really where the support is needed and where there are things we may be able to do as an organisation to directly help. So line managers are faced with this difficulty of how do you sort of show commitment and support to remote workers at the same time as showing that you trust them. So, you know, it's Im- you know that it's important to stay in touch. You know it's important to communicate. You know it's important not to leave them by themselves. But the last thing you want to do is seem like you're constantly checking up on them, that you don't trust them, that you think they're not working. You know, that is, it's easier to casually stop by when you're in the same office than it is to just casually stop by when someone's working at home. So this has a lot of effect on line managers' own workloads their sense of security, their own psychosocial safety. And they really need you. They were thrown into this during COVID with no sort of training or suggestion on what are the best ways to manage this. Um, What are just like some practical guides for how do you establish that relationship? How do you establish the communication? And with little understanding of how do you pick up on the signs of a worker who is uncomfortable, unhappy? You know, if you're seeing them in the office every day, you notice they're not themselves, but seeing them over Zoom or Teams, of course they're not themselves. You know, they, they're sitting on a space station with a cut-out figure of their face. It's, you know, how do you really know how they're feeling and what's going on? So, Drew, then the fourth topic is about teams and individuals. So this, is, this, this feels more like at a work group type of level. Do you want to sort of share some insights here? Yeah, so I don't think that there's much that's like hugely insightful here, except that so much of safety relies on good communication. Um, regular flow of information, and in particular, two-way communication, not just broadcast. And that breaks down vertically and horizontally when people are working remotely. You've got physical separation, you've got mental separation, you've got an extra sort of activation energy for any instance of communication, all of which makes communication more formal, more one-way, less information content, less sort of casual informal content that is often important for safety. Yeah, and Andrew, I have seen some research over the last couple of years talking about you know reduced trust among teams. So so teams that don't have that physical regular um, contact with each other, uh, sort of rather than assume good intent, can sometimes start by assuming bad intent because they just don't have as established relationships and you know and and trust amongst each other. And I also you know one example that I wouldn't mind sharing is is from a utility organisation that that I'm aware of where. The real challenge is between teams that can work from home and teams that can't. So, you know, in this this instance, it was a net, network control room environment where the controllers had to physically be in the office. Um, but a lot of the support staff, you know, human resources, safety, finance, were all working from home. And so the first few times that the team actually needed some health and safety advice, they'd do what they used to do and walk out to the area where health and safety sits and no one's sitting there. And they try to reach a few of them and they can't get a hold of anyone. And then they just go on and make an operational decision because they have to. And and then that health and safety team feels very excluded by operations for, you know, why didn't they consult me? Why didn't they they ask me? But the operations team has kind of learned that, you know, that help's not there for them anymore in a timely way that they need it to be. 
So it was really challenging as to whether it was creating physical risk in in the organization around safety, but also the psychosocial risk of both teams. You know, the the control room team that felt isolated from support in the organization and the health and safety team that felt excluded from activities and decisions that they thought they should be involved in. So I only share that example, Joe. I don't know what your thoughts are of that example, but it actually created some really significant um, operational and 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 organizational challenges. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how you can have two groups of people simultaneously, they feel that they've been abandoned. You, the people who are there in the building and the rest of the building is empty. They feel that everyone else has left and they're being ignored and forgotten and left behind. And the people stuck at home are thinking, well, now we're at home, but we've been forgotten about. We've been left out here, disconnected. No one's paying attention to us. No one's reaching out to us. And there's been research for decades that have said the number one factor in trust is not something sophisticated like, you know, emotional intelligence or interpersonal relationships or anything like that. It's simple familiarity. The more you physically see someone, the more you trust them, regardless of anything else. And so just the more we physically separate people, the more they become strangers. And there's just that lack of assuming good intent. So, Drew, we've talked a lot about psychosocial hazards associated with remote work, and, and we'll talk about the safety management system application to those those hazards. There are some physical hazards, I guess, that have been topical for, I guess, even pre-COVID around you know the extent to which organizations need to support individuals to manage the physical hazards in their home environments you know their desks their chairs their staircases their their kitchens so you know did this this research kind of offer much in the way of organizations responding to that geographically diverse set of physical hazards i don't think they say a lot that's new about it but they do highlight just how inconsistent organizations' approaches are and perhaps the need for just some sort of standardized guidance on what is an organization responsible for when you ask to work from home or when they ask you to work from home. So you've got, at the one hand, you've got people who say like, okay, working from home is a privilege, you choose to do it. Here is a risk assessment template, check your own ergonomics, tell us if there's a problem. And then at the other extreme, you've got, well, when it, wherever we set you up to work, we make sure that you've got a work from home environment. So like, here is your kit. Here is the link to the local office works that's going to provide it. And, you know, we will actually set you up with a workstation and equipment and everything that we think is appropriate and suitable. And so, yeah, between those extremes, there's just varying degrees of expectation and responsibility for whose responsibility is that environment. So this paper didn't resolve that outstanding issue, um, but just, I guess, brought it to the attention again. So, Drew, they go into a sort of a, a large suggested, I'm not going to call it a toolbox for flexible working. It's kind of like areas where perhaps tools required. How much do you want to talk through some of these? So this, this first bit, which if you're reading along in the table, this is table two. They call it a toolbox for flexible working. But most of the topics in here are actually just references to other toolboxes. So they say we need some sort of tools for legislation, codes of practice, guidelines, policy. So basically that's clarity about responsibilities for psychological safety, clarity about responsibilities for the ergonomic work environment. Uh, we need tools that support the physical work environment, making sure that it's ergonomic, making sure that the hazards from working from home are understood, making sure that it's clear to the workers and to the managers whose responsibility is what. Uh, we need tools for senior management for planning for things like risk assessment, 
and policies and procedures that provide other tools to people. And it goes on, you know, about accessing professional assistance, communication, measuring performance, collecting monitoring data, building capacity, building interpersonal skills, uh, providing tools for teams. So that's a toolbox, but it's a toolbox of a need for tools that doesn't give much beyond that. But after that table is where I think they get really, really useful. They talk about what does a manager actually need from a toolbox. And this is, I think, a list. It's a, it's a short list, but it's stuff that a health and safety team could make sure that you were providing each of these things to your managers when they're responsible for working from home. David, feel free to jump in with any of these with elaboration. Uh, but the first thing is managers need a tool for onboarding. Um, how do you get in a new employee, particularly if their first day at work is going to be at home? Or how do you sort of onboard someone into the work from home environment when they've previously been in the office environment? What are the things that you need to take care of to make sure that the situation is set up to start with? Managers need tools for navigating the employee-manager relationship. They've got all this uncertainty about like, how do I reach out? How do I avoid sounding like I'm checking up? They just need like advice, practical things that they can do so that they're not just left in the dark having to invent their own strategies for communication. Tools for managing feelings of isolation. So how do they manage their own feelings? How do they, you know, what's the advice when an employee reaches out to you and says, I feel isolated? What are some things you can say? What are some things you can do? What are the limits? Where do you need to start seeking professional assistance? What are you expected to take care of as a line manager? What are you expected to reach out to health and safety or HR for as a line manager? What types of services are available? You, I guess this particularly refers to things like you know, employee assistance packages, but your line managers need that to be on hand. And if they're working from home themselves, they can't just have a link to an intranet that they can't access. You know, telling an employee, oh, look up the EAP on the internet is not a good answer when someone is in distress. And managers need resources for team building. So often managers have been given some training in team building that applies when people are physically present, but they need instruction and possibly even training in interpersonal skills for managing team building in that new environment. And then there are some sort of like more advanced things that are still important. Uh, like, for example, how do you have necessary or difficult or sometimes called like powerful conversations online? So things like, you know, performance management or boundary setting. Those are much harder to do when you're not face to face and they can go badly, badly wrong when they're done remotely and you don't have that sense of feedback. So it's a particular set of skills. It needs not just advice, it needs actual like training and practice with triads to have a go at it and get it right and build those skills. How do you conduct risk assessment or respond if a hazard is identified through risk assessment when the employee is working from home or in some alternate location? And I thought this was a really interesting ad. How do you assess the suitability of services? How do you know when you send someone off to the EAP that they're actually getting help and that you're not just like shoving them off onto a service that's not going to be helpful? How do you know what services are good, what services are not good? and that employees are getting the extra help they need if they need extra help. David, your thoughts on those? Yeah, Drew, I think that's a really good list of, of 10 or 12 things that health and safety professionals and practitioners can be considering right now. To what extent does my organization have support, resources, direction, tools for these types of these types of issues? And to what extent are we just leaving managers to you know try to work it out for themselves? So I think this is a really good part of the paper, Drew. 
And they were a little bit more limited on what employees need, but they still made some, I guess, conclusions about what employees need. Yeah, they've got a short list and most of these are unsurprising. So employees need guidance on identifying and reporting hazards and risks. I'm not so sure about that one. I'm not sure that's particularly useful or helpful. Resources about self-care. Yeah, I mean, that really depends on the quality of those resources. You, you often, but you know, there, 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 there are some good stuff there and particularly some employees benefit a lot from reminders and guidance and assistance for self-care. David, I don't know about you, our company sent everyone a chocolate Freddo <laughs> during COVID. And it was just like really, really nice to have a piece of chocolate arrive in the mailbox and just a reminder, you're at home, but we haven't forgotten you. So, you know, self, self-care can actually help. Um, it's just got to be done well. Uh, similarly, things like building resilience you know, can be naughty, but if done well, it really is helpful. Guidance on managing the boundaries of work and home when working remotely. They don't mention it, but I think actually helpful knowing the organization's expectations in managing those boundaries is also important. You know, do we expect you to be at your desk from nine to five or do we expect you to be available from certain hours? Is it okay to turn off your phone when you would normally be traveling to and from work, those sorts of things? And how do you respond appropriately when you are feeling uncomfortable or when you are feeling that your well-being is threatened? It's pretty hard to take a day off when you're already not in the office. So what are the right ways to do that? David, your thoughts on any of those ones? Yeah, look, and I think I think this is an area where organisations, I guess, have started and it's a little bit like, I mean, I, I don't want to say that this is exactly like our physical safety world from that we've got history is, but this this list is a little bit like the, the PPE and the administrative requirements that we've imposed on physical safety uh, risks for, for a long time. And I think this is where I see organisations starting. So that, that list of management tools that uh, can help leaders create the environment to, to manage the or identify and manage the hazard, hazards and risks associated with the team has kind of been left to the side uh, in in my observation by a lot of the things directed specifically at trying to increase the resilience and support for for workers which which you know is part of it and also can be uh, a little bit more of a reactive um, solution to um, to solving these or working with these issues yeah I, I like the way they prioritized it in this paper. And that's what I would recommend to someone who was trying to manage this in your organization is start with providing the tools to the frontline managers because they're doing most of the support for the frontline employees anyway. So if you equip them well and make sure that they're set up for success and manage their well-being, that will flow directly to the employees, whereas a lot of the stuff from the employees just risks not landing and not being effective if it's targeted too directly at the frontline. So Drew, should we go to some practical takeaways? Yeah, so just before we do, I do just want to acknowledge that the paper does contain a lot more interesting just general discussion beyond this. They, they put a lot of thought into the relationship between psychosocial and physical hazards and exactly where those boundaries are and how that plays into the different levels of competence and confidence when OHS practitioners are trying to deal with things that they know they've got to deal with, but that are outside their immediate expertise. So we won't go into more of that now for the nature of time, but that's a good reason to pick up the paper and read it is if you're interested in uh, the sort of negotiation of those sorts of issues. Um, so on to takeaways. So the first one that I've got here is just when managing you know, issues such as work from home, it's easy to fall into the trap of either just very vague and useless principles like resilience or really precise and useless ergonomic checklists. 
And I do think that there is a useful middle ground, particularly for line managers, where you can identify what they need from you as an organization, and those needs can be met by providing them with tools and guidance and just some you know, practical advice for how to manage different things. And so compared with what we're seeing at the moment a little bit in the financial press of you know, dealing with things on uh, in, in inverted commas, case by case basis, or you know, on average three days a week in the office, or your performance review and bonus will consider your presenteeism in the office at the end of the year. So that's not so much providing any tools and resources, but just trying to provide a set of principles and maybe a little bit of fear to to encourage a behavior that the organization wants without, I guess, the management of the risk associated with it. Yeah, we don't have this as a takeaway, but I think a lot of people's response to work from home is, let's try to subtly discourage it because we're uncomfortable with it. At the same time as we recognize that it's probably inevitable. And that's a pretty awkward space to be in where you're just sort of turning a blind eye to what's actually gonna happen. Second takeaway is that safety is always more about relationships and communication than it is about risk assessments and reporting hazards. You working from home isn't new in that regard. It just makes it really obvious and highlights that relationships and communication aren't vague things. They're things that we can support people in. They're things that we can train people in. They're things we can provide people with tools to manage. And that's what we need to do, not provide tools for the hazard identification. And so, Drew, your third one that you've got there? Third one I've got is just that one size doesn't fit all. You, the big one in this paper is safety strategies for work from home are different from safety strategies from work at work. But it divides down further that, you know, we've got people working from home, we've got hybrid workers, we've got workers who work at different offices, or even just people who are on part-time contracts and don't show up on Fridays and we always have the meeting on Fridays. So we need our broad safety strategies to acknowledge the different shape that work can take. And then we need to make sure that we provide specific support where there are specific issues within each of those different types of work. So Drew, the comment that I, I added at the end and, and going back to you mentioning at the start that a lot of this is about the work of safety. We've got existing safety management systems and practices in, in all of our organizations. And you know, there's an opportunity to stop and review a lot of those, um, well, all of those practices to I guess, see the extent to which they support the full range of working arrangements and, and, and hazards and risks. So, you know, there's everything from your, what we've spoken about today, risk management, leadership training, emergency response, you know, supervision, you know, how does this all, this all work in, in these diverse and, and different working arrangements? So David, this doesn't come from the paper itself, but you've just sort of raised what I think is sort of an interesting idea, which is we're obliged to regularly review our practices and systems, but we're very seldom told what to review them for. And actually having a specific focus each time you have a review can be really effective in identifying a whole range of different issues, even some not related to that. So, you know, like going through every practice and system and saying, how would this work for someone at home might actually reveal some interesting things that apply to a lot of different cases. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Drew. And I'd be looking at all of my safety management systems and documents and practices. And anything with an issue date of 2019 or before, I'd suggest maybe prime candidate to consider with that with that question. Yeah. So Drew, the question that we asked this week was, um, how do we manage safety for work from home workers? Well, the short answer this time is that there definitely isn't a short answer. But this paper comes from a larger project. And I know that the people who did the work have gathered together a list of existing resources and toolbox. As, and as, like as part of this project, they've even created a few prototype tools and 
training packages and stuff themselves. So what I'd say is if you're in Australia and you're interested in this, maybe reach out to one of the authors and take them out for coffee. We'll tag them in the show notes and on Safety Exchange and LinkedIn for this episode. So yeah, hopefully someone will actually get something out of it and build some connections. Great. So Drew, that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Join us in the discussion online or send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 